we're going to consider this question of who is the Good Shepherd and who are the sheep and I'm going to consider mainly the first of those two questions and do it under a number of headings. First of all, the Good Shepherd we know is Christ but how does he identify what enables him, if you like, to claim the title of Good Shepherd? Well, the first one is that the Good Shepherd owns his sheep. The second is that the Good Shepherd keeps his sheep. And the third is that the Good Shepherd saves his sheep. The Good Shepherd saves his sheep. Those three things, among others, of course, are what identify the Good Shepherd and enable the Lord Jesus Christ to claim that as a unique title. Now I say Christ owns his sheep and that is made very clear here. But he says in this passage that all who came before me were thieves and robbers. Now he's talking about people who had, uh, prior to himself, come uh, into public knowledge and had claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, had claimed to be God's unique messenger, had claimed to be uh, the heir of the throne of David, had claimed uh, to be the one who would save the people of Israel from bondage and, and, and imprisonment in uh, the grasp of the Roman Empire. But the Lord Jesus says they were thieves and robbers and they did not own the sheep. He spends a little time uh, in this passage uh, making it quite clear that there are those, there were those who would lay claim to be the good shepherd but uh, would be would be imposters uh, and they would not indeed be able to do the things that he alone uniquely has been able to do for the sheep. And um, he mentions this almost in passing perhaps, but <clears throat> if we turn to um, the Acts of the Apostles we get some interesting words, interesting information. Uh, John and Peter had been arraigned before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, and they had been accused of preaching Christ as the Good Shepherd, as the true Messiah. And they were so upset by this uh, that we read in Acts chapter 5 and verse 33, when they, and this is the council in their meeting, when they heard this, when they heard what Peter and John had been preaching, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded the prisoners to be put uh, out 
for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him and let them go. Uh, so there we have a couple of names attached to these pretenders, these, these people who claim to be the Christ, the new leaders, uh, God-given leaders of Israel. Uh, but they were not, they were just thieves and robbers. Now in what sense were they thieves and robbers? Well, the answer I think is pretty clear from the passage we've just read. These were people who set themselves up as leaders. They were not interested in their followers. They were on an ego trip. They were setting themselves up to be the leaders, feeding uh, delusions of greatness, looking after themselves, just like the, the hireling who runs away he looks after his own skin rather than looking after the sheep. Well, these, these thieves and robbers are thieves and robbers in the sense that they draw people away from the truth. They would draw people away from the true Christ and set themselves up as leaders. They are stealing people from the truth and subjecting them to error. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus was talking about things that happened before he came. But we can look back on history and indeed look at society in our present day and we can identify that the thieves and the robbers are still among us. You find it particularly perhaps in the cults. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses set themselves up as the possessors of ultimate truth that only they can correctly interpret the Bible. And are they interested in their followers, their people, in the interests of those that adhere to them? Not at all. They are looking for position. They are seeking the satisfaction of being the top, the leaders, the people who have control over their followers. It's a typical of cults, this control over their followers. But you know, it's not only cults that are guilty of this in our own day. There are obvious examples like the um, television evangelists, some of them in the United States, for example, uh, who 
who, who attract enormous followings, enormous crowds. And how do they do it? They say, well, if you give your money to us, we will pray for you and make sure you prosper. They preach and teach a health, wealth and happiness gospel, uh, which is this. You support us, you give us your money, and we will guarantee. Because you do that, God will give you health, wealth and happiness. And, and this is not just the, the domain of the television preachers. You go to the mega churches in many countries, mostly in America of course, but also in South America, and we go to churches that follow the so-called church growth movement, and what do we find? We find that it is leaders who are putting themselves in the place of leadership. They're not God-appointed. But their purpose is to draw a following, to attract a following after themselves. And, and we have to live with this. Um, when the Apostle Peter uh, wrote in chapter 5 of his first epistle to the elders, now Peter was writing to a very big audience, to the dispersion of the Christians throughout the Eastern world at that time and uh, he wrote to them, he said I Peter exhort the elders who are among you who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker in the glory that shall follow feed the church of God feed the flock of God he uses the, the sheep imagery there feed the flock of God or, or shepherd the flock of God and he says taking the oversight taking the leadership um, not grudgingly but willingly not for financial gain but eagerly not as being lords over God's heritage but as examples to the flock. And the chief shepherd, when he shall appear, uh, will give you a crown of glory. Uh, you see, Peter was conscious of the fact that even from among Christians and in Christian churches, there would rise up people on, I repeat the expression, on an ego trip people who desired either financial gain or more likely reputation wanted people to look up to them wanted people to do what they said uh, and to obey them and that these people were not interested in the sheep at all they're just interested in feathering their own nests either financially or psychologically or in some other way now we do live in a world where that is common and we do have to beware of it. That is why the scripture goes to the trouble of, of saying these things, if you like, so that we should be aware of the dangers. But now let's come back to this statement that <clears throat> the sheep belong to Christ. They are, they are his. 
and if we don't have time to do this but if you go back to what we sometimes call the great high priestly prayer of Christ in John chapter 17 you'll find that in that relatively short chapter the Lord Jesus praying to his father for his followers says six times they were yours and you gave them to me <clears throat> or words to that effect saying father you gave me the flock how did Christ acquire the flock how did they become his own sheep because the father gave them to him now you may say well that's just an obscure theological point but you know it isn't at all because the fact that Christ received the flock as a gift from the Father, <clears throat> in, our, in our passage here as well, of course, uh, the Father who gave them to me is greater than all, he says, and none shall ever pluck them out of his hand. The fact that the Father gave the flock to Christ underlies Christ's whole attitude and all his actions toward the sheep. Now, I think it is very difficult for us to, to get our mind around this. And I, I looked for a human illustration. But how can you illustrate a transaction of Almighty God with his divine Son in human terms? It's, it's impossible, isn't it? But nevertheless, I came up with this, which might be helpful. <clears throat> Imagine a, a young man. His, his mother has died. And his father says to him, I'm going to give you your mother's engagement ring. Because it is something very precious to me. And I want it to keep and, and remain in the family. And, and so I'm, I'm giving you this ring as, uh, as a solemn trust. You're going to look after this ring. You're not going to sell it. You're not going to uh, lose it. You're not going to forget it. I, I want this ring to be a way of remembering your mother because it mean, meant and still means so much to me. Uh, so the, the young man accepts the engagement ring from his father. And uh, a little later, he falls in love and proposes marriage to uh, a young woman. And she accepts. And as a token of his love for his fiancée, he gives her the ring his mother's engagement ring and then they get married and they prosper and, and they have a family of their own and, and sometime down the years one of their children perhaps it's a teenager uh, says to his mother mum why do you always wear that old ring you've got lots of better rings than that 
You've got lots of more beautiful rings. You've got lots of more expensive jewellery, which you hardly ever wear. Why do you insist on wearing this ring, which wasn't a particularly special ring or a particularly valuable one? And she smiled and said, this ring is of more value to me than any of the other jewellery that I possess because it is a love token the first love token from your father, my husband and although it's a very simple ring and not a very valuable ring nevertheless to me it is more valuable than anything else that I possess in terms of jewellery at least now, you see, in that illustration, <clears throat> there are two givers, aren't there? There's the, the uh, original father who, who gives the ring to his son uh, as a, a solemn trust to look after it, to care for it, because it meant so much to him. And then you've got the second giving, when the son gives it as a love gift to his, uh, his wife-to-be. Now, if you can somehow merge those two givings and see that the Father's gift is both is both a solemn trust because the sheep meant so much to the Father he chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world they meant so much to him they mean so much to him. And so he gives them to the son. He says, you look after this. You keep this trust. You fulfill this because this is something means so much to me. But at the same time, it is a love gift from the father to the son. The father loves me, we read in this passage, because I lay my life down for the sheep. The motivation for all his redeeming work and keeping work uh, toward the sheep is that the sheep were entrusted to him by the father as a solemn pledge and as a love gift and so behind this apparently obscure theological point there is tremendous amount of meaning and we have to try to understand that what was the motivation that Christ had to do all that he has done. I believe that motivation has at least its beginning in the fact that the sheep were given to him by the Father. Well then my second point. Christ keeps the sheep. Christ looks after the sheep. He cares for the sheep. And he cares so much uh, as he tells us in the passage, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He wants the sheep to have an abundant spiritual life, an abundant spiritual experience, a profound and continuous experience of the love of God, the love of the Father uh, transmitted through the Son to the individual sheep. He cares for the sheep. 
uh, and it's illustrated in a number of ways. I just want to quote uh, one verse from Isaiah uh, chapter 43, opening verses of that chapter. Now, now here, of course, God is speaking to Israel, the nation of Israel. And we must remember that although the nation of Israel was very rebellious, yet nevertheless the Old Testament nation of Israel is used as a picture of the New Testament church. And it's in that context that we should uh, understand these words. And the words are these. Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Though you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Now there we see a wonderful picture of God caring for those that he has created, brought into being, whom he has redeemed from their sin, whom he has called by name, you are mine. And so I'm going to look after you. I'm going to be with you in the hard times. I'm going to be with you in those rivers. I'm going to be with you in the fires of temptation, in the fires of trial. I'm going to be there. Why? Because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. And we can take those words and apply them to ourselves. Apply them to the work of Christ. And I think, in fact, I think we ought to do so. But, you know, I don't think there's any single example of the Lord caring for his sheep than the fact that a single sheep is just as valuable to him as the entire flock. In other words, when Christ loves his sheep, when he calls them by name, when he leads them through the dangers and trials of life, we could go to the 23rd Psalm, we won't do that today. Uh, when he does that, he's demonstrating his care for the individual sheep. And, and this is a very wonderful thing, and of course it immediately takes us to Luke chapter 15, where we have the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, what man of you, says Christ, uh, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one, does not immediately leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go out looking for his sheep, searching for his sheep. And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulder and comes back and says to his friends and neighbours, Rejoice, for I have found my sheep. And I think that very brief parable 
is dramatized and made, I think, clearer to us, at least on an emotional level, by an old hymn that very few people know these days. And uh, that's a sad thing, because it was something that meant a great deal to me when I first trusted Christ, when I first became a Christian. And uh, I'm going to take the liberty of uh, testing your patience by reading the five verses. And sometime perhaps we'll learn the hymn and be able to sing it. There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. But one was out on the hills, away far off from the gates of gold. Away on the mountains, wild and bare. Away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here your ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, This of mine has wandered away from me, and although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. Out in the desert he heard its cry, sick and helpless and ready to die. Lord, whence are those blood drops all the way that mark out the mountain's track? They were shed for one who had gone astray ere the shepherd could bring him back. Lord, whence are thy hands so rent and torn? They are pierced tonight by many a thorn. And then the final verse. But all through the mountains of thunder riven and up from the rocky steep there arose a glad cry to the gates of heaven. Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. The fact that Christ's love and care is lavished not upon the flock collectively, although that is true, but is lavished upon the individual. That's you and me. And that is a very humbling and a very encouraging thought. Well then finally, my three points were the Lord owns the sheep. That's what makes him the good shepherd. He owns the sheep. He keeps the sheep. He cares for them, looks after them, watches over them. And finally, he saves the sheep. And we come to the fact that Christ died for the sheep. Now, the wonder, wonderful thing here, in a sense, is that he begins by what is a very simple illustration, because he's contrasting himself with the hired servant. And uh, the hired servant, he says, looks after his own skin. When the wolf appears, 
the servant. The servant's not altogether um, illogical. He may be a coward, maybe not. But the hired servant thinks, well, just a minute, this wolf is not hunting me. It's hunting the sheep. And if I let it hunt the sheep, it'll take one sheep. I'm not going to kill more than one sheep at a time because I've got to drag it away and, and, and feed upon it. Probably keep it going for two or three days. So it's only one sheep out of, out of the hundred. Yet if I go to war with the predator, if I take the wolf on in, in combat, then I am likely to get hurt. Maybe I get killed. And surely my life is worth far more than just one of a hundred sheep. And you see, the Lord is, is, is contrasting his behaviour with, with that. The picture is that Christ did engage with the predator. The wolf, what was it? Not Satan, it was sin. Sin, sin was what he engaged with. He was made sin when he died upon the cross that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was sin, he engaged with sin and sin temporarily at least killed him but he also killed it. So both the Good Shepherd and the wolf die in the conflict and the sheep remain unharmed. Uh, but that is a very, a very simple, a very elementary account of what happened on the cross. It, 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 it was much deeper, much more profound than that. And so we have to go on from there. And we have to remember that Christ, when he died upon the cross, was not saving a flock of innocent sheep. He was saving those who were his enemies, those who had rejected him. And in Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul enlarges upon this. In chapter 5 and verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates, I like the King James Version, commends. God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been, been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life Christ wasn't saving the innocent he was saving the guilty he was saving those who 
opposed and he came to his own remember in the first chapter of John he came to his own speaking of the Jews he came to his own and his own did not receive him he was rejected by the very people he came to save and yet he saved the very people that God had given to him from eternity past as the elect flock of God I, I think you can somehow feel in this Romans 5 passage the amazement, the wonder of the Apostle as he, he realizes what Christ has done. He said people don't give their lives for, for other people normally. That's quite abnormal. And they would only do it if the other person was really worthy of that sacrifice. But here is Christ dying for his enemies in order to save them to bring them out of the darkness of their enmity and unbelief to faith in himself that is a, a wondrous thing and then there's another deeper dimension and we get it clearly in this passage my father loves me he says because I lay down my life for the sheep. No man takes my life from me. I lay down my life of myself. No man takes it from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it back again. Therefore, my father loves me. This is amazing. The Lord Jesus Christ did not die at the hands, was not murdered by the hands of the Romans who couldn't care less who they were killing. He wasn't delivered to death by the enmity and the jealousy of the Jewish leaders. He offered himself. And we didn't really get that full story until we come to the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, where in chapter 9 and verse 14 we read the writer is comparing Christ and Christ's high priesthood with the passing and temporary priesthood of the, of the Mosaic Covenant. And he says, making the comparison, if the blood of bulls and goats sanctifies to the purification of the flesh, that is, if it, if it suffices to make a, a Jew ceremonially clean, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your consciences from dead works that you might serve the living God? Christ offered himself. He gave up his life in order to redeem us, in order to bear our sins in his own body on the tree. He gave up his life uh, that we might, we might assume, take upon ourselves, be given the righteousness of Christ. It was a great exchange and we've talked about this before. He bore our sins that we might wear his righteousness. 
but it was all totally under his control. I have power to give up my life. I have power to die in this manner and for this reason. And then, even more amazing, I have power to take it again. Even when Christ's body lay dead in the tomb, Christ had the power to raise that body. He never lost control. Never lost control. And he died upon the cross. Now, you may find it difficult to grasp that, perhaps beyond our true comprehension. But nevertheless, the Bible teaches that Christ was in complete control. He was delivered, said Peter, on the day of Pentecost by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. But you were wicked by crucifying him. You are full of guilt, even though he was offering himself, yet the guilt of his death attaches to you. And that's why you need to repent and trust in the dying Christ. Well, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table to remember some of these things. Uh, but I hope you go away with this thought in your mind, that Christ is the good shepherd because he owns the sheep. The Father gave them to him because he keeps the sheep. He looks after them and cares for them because he saves the sheep through his death upon the cross, his self-sacrifice, his great high priestly offering of himself to God. 